The figure of speech hoisted on its own petard, or hoisted with its own petard. That's an expression. I don't know if you've ever heard it or not. I was quizzing my family and friends, and uh, nobody had ever heard of that. I thought it was more commonly known, but maybe some of you have. And you get extra credit today if you know what that expression means and where it comes from. So come up to me afterwards and tell me, but I would prefer you would mention it, whisper it right now to your seatmate or to your spouse, so there's some kind of confirmation. I trust all of you, uh, but I just want that. Hoisted with its own petard. All right, what that means, it's an expression that means poetic justice. Where it comes from is Shakespeare, Shakespeare's play Hamlet. So in the play, <coughs> Hamlet discovers an assassination plot against his life. And since he's discovered it and uncovered it, he's able to manipulate things so that <clears throat> his would-be assassins are themselves assassinated. And so he says they were hoisted with their own petard. Now back then, a petard was a bomb. To be hoisted is to be lifted up into the air. So what that means is uh, to be hoisted with one's own petard is to be exploded with your own bomb. That's what it means, and that's where it comes from, and it means poetic justice, and that's what we're talking about today. As we continue in the story of Esther, we come to the point in that story where God executes his poetic justice in their circumstances. Now, if you're new to us, when we last left Esther, if you recall, Haman had experienced a pivot point in the story. There was a shift in momentum against Haman and towards Mordecai and Esther. And Haman, at this point, is whisked off to attend the second banquet of Esther with King Xerxes. So that's where we're going to pick up the story today. Esther is going to make her request before the king, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. And King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who dared to do such a thing. And Esther answered, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. So finally, Esther tells the king what she wants after all of that way, and she puts the finger on Haman. Haman is the bad guy in the story, as you probably know. Haman is a narcissist. He's an egomaniac. He is power hungry, and he will run over anyone who gets in his way, and he is produced this edict to eliminate all the Jews in the kingdom of Persia. So that's what Esther is talking about. The world has always had attainments, always had attainments. And in the 20th century alone, we have Hitler, for instance. Now, in our culture, almost nobody can agree that anything is wrong or that anyone is bad, but we all still agree that Hitler was bad, the Nazis are wrong, and Hitler, just like Haman, had it in for the Jews and wanted to annihilate the Jews, as you know. You've got the Duvalier family over in Haiti. Remember, they've been the ruling, they were the ruling family for years. They despoiled the whole country, robbed them, enriched themselves, impoverished Haiti. There's not another country in the Western Hemisphere as poor as Haiti because of the Duvalier family. Over in North Korea, you've got the Kim 
family right now. They are the rulers. A personality cult, great oppression going on in that country. We could multiply names. Idi Amin, Mussolini, Pol Pot, Joseph Stalin, Mao, Saddam Hussein. Each of them, like Haman, had an unquenchable thirst for power and an unrelenting brutality toward anyone who threatened it. Haman is the prototype for all of the mass murderers, tyrannical despots, and ruthless dictators. But now his day has come, his day of reckoning. Okay, so we continue the story. Verse 7, the king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 75 feet stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. This is the perfect proportional reversal of fortune for Haman. How ironic it is that Haman, throughout his life in this story, had sought to elevate himself over everyone else, is now literally elevated over everyone else on a pole 75 feet high. The punishment that Haman was seeking for Mordecai falls on his own head. The reward that Haman was seeking for himself is now given to Mordecai. He is the embodiment of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 714. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out. And falls in the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull, his violence descends. This is the work of the providence of God. To right wrongs and to bring about injustice. Or bring about justice for those who have been treated with injustice in our world. Okay. So there's the poetic justice of God in the story of Esther. What does that mean for us? And how does that help us today. I want to suggest three ways the poetic justice of God helps us. And the first way is it helps us to worship God. It helps us to worship God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. This is the very character of our God is to go to fight on the side of the oppressed against the oppressor, on the side of the righteous against the wicked, on the side of the weak against the strong and the powerful, to right injustices. That's the character of God. That's related to worship for us. Because what is worship? It's the recognition of the attributes of God that we love and that we appreciate and for which we express adoration. So we see this part of God's character, sometimes covertly, sometimes in a very subtle way, as in the story of Esther, where the name of God is never even mentioned. 
Yet you can see his providential hidden hand in the circumstances, writing that injustice. Sometimes God is more overt and obvious, right? As in the story of Joseph. When Joseph is a young man sold by his 11 brothers into slavery, begging for his life. And then years later, as he's risen to prominence in Egypt, his brothers have to come before him, not recognizing him, begging for their lives, begging for mercy, begging for food. And Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God is obvious and overt in that story. But whether it's subtle and covert, obvious and overt, this is what God does. And this is what we can appreciate about God and worship about Him. Just one of the attributes. I read recently about William Kelly, 42 years old. He told Kennewick, Washington police, that he had left his red Chevy pickup truck in a parking lot after a night out at a tavern. When he returned to pick it up early Sunday, he left the keys on the front seat. He went in to find a bathroom. Surveillance footage of the area obtained by police shows a man on a bicycle ride by, spot the keys in the front seat. He tossed his bicycle in the bed of the pickup truck, and he got in and stole the truck. Here comes Kelly. You can see him on the video. He's chasing in the truck as it drives away. So Kelly calls it into the police. My truck was stolen. So they respond. Now, when they carefully watched the video surveillance footage of the area, they discovered that Kelly had parked his truck and walked into a store across the street to rob it. He was stealing from the store. And while he's stealing from the store, somebody stole his truck. And so the police arrested Kelly. And the guy with the truck is still at large. You got to love that story, right? Amen. That is poetic justice. There's something in us that loves stories like that. I don't know about you. I like to watch the videos on YouTube, instant karma type videos. And somebody's out driving some obnoxious driver. He's tailgating or he's brake checking. He's flashing obnoxious hand signals. And then the next scene, he, he's spinning out in the median right there. And the police are giving him a ticket. You think, oh, yes, we like that. We don't believe in karma, but we'll just call it poetic justice. Why do we like it so much? Well, for one thing, we're made in the image of God. And God has perfect justice. We've got a sense of justice built into us. Now, it's not perfect. It's marred by sin and what have you. But there's still something that responds in us when people come to justice. And by the way, who was it that arrested Kelly and brought him to justice? It was the police. And he is to be sentenced before the courts. And the police and the court system and civil government, when it's doing its job properly, is the arm of God executing poetic justice in our country. Romans 13.4. Paul says, governing authority is a minister of God. Some of you call me a minister. Governing authority is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. I'm not saying civil government obvious, always does its job properly. Obviously, it does not. But often it does, and when it does, it is the arm of God. It is the arm of God for justice. 
This is the story arc that we love. Some of our favorite movies, this is the story arc. Think of the Star Wars movies, you know, it's the, the oppressed against the oppressor, the little weak guy against the strong guy, Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, and the good guy wins in the end against almost impossible odds. We love that story arc. It's the story arc of all the Indiana Jones movies. It's the story arc of the MCU universe and the Avengers movies. It's the story arc of so many stories that we love. What do we love about that? The justice. The Batman movies. You know, we can't wait till the next Batman movie to come out. They make it over and over again because we love it. Batman's not even a real thing. He's a fictional character. But we love it and we cheer and we clap. When's the next movie? And you've got a real person over here who is God. Who really does that. Really stands for the poor and the oppressed and the weak. And brings about justice. And completes that story arc. So yeah, clap for Batman, but save a little love and applause and fervor and enthusiasm and approval and appreciation for God in our worship, in our worship. So what does the poetic justice of God do for us? Helps us to worship God. Here's another thing. It helps us to live peaceful and nonviolent lives, mostly. Helps us to live mostly peaceful and nonviolent lives. Paul writes in Romans 12, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. How and why? Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Let's talk about peace for a minute. A lot of people don't have peace, inner peace. And sometimes the reason why is we have experienced some injustice and unfairness in our lives. So no justice, no peace, no, no internal peace. And the injustice is real. I'm not, I'm not saying there's nothing to it. It can be very serious, very unfair, very unjust. So that's legit. And we say, well, yeah, Steve, I mean, you're talking about God coming on behalf of somebody who suffered, but you know, I'm not seeing that in my life. And one thing to remember this morning, just a reminder, there is an ultimate justice that God is going to bring into this world. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Romans 3.6, God will judge the world. Matthew 25.32, all the nations will be gathered before him. I use the one-year Bible for my devotions, as do many of you, and was reading in Acts this past week, around Acts chapter 23. Paul is worshiping there in the temple in Jerusalem, minding his own business. When people start causing trouble for him, he's arrested. He's brought up before the Jewish high council on unjust, unfair, trumped up charges. And the council says, okay, defend yourself. Paul gets one sentence out of his mouth. And it's not confrontational, but he gets the one sentence out of his mouth. And the high priest over here, who is supposed to stand for justice and righteousness and the law of Moses and fairness orders that Paul be slapped in the face. And he was. And here was Paul's response. Acts 23.3 God will slap you, you hypocrite. Now is that just an angry knee-jerk reaction from Paul? I'm sure he was angry. But it's not just knee-jerk. That's actually a theological statement. Paul entrusts himself To God, Paul's the one who says, don't return evil for evil. Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, you turn the other cheek. 
How are we supposed to do that with the knowledge that God's going to slap on the other cheek when the time comes for the people who need it and deserve it? You say, well, Steve, that doesn't sound very Christ-like. You know what Paul said here reminds me of what Wang Yi said. Wang Yi, the preacher of one of the largest non-registered churches in China. And China doesn't like unregistered churches. About 5,000 strong. Wang Yi was arrested, brought before the courts, and on trumped up charges, sentenced to eight years in prison, basically just because he's a preacher. And here's what he wrote. Those who persecute me will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. And when I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are imprisoning me. Now, Wang Yi has peace because he knows about the justice of God. I want to read you a couple of quotes here. First one's from Miroslav Volf. Miroslav is a Croatian theologian writing from the genocidal war zones of his homeland. He asked this, quote, when your brother has been gunned down by a local militia, where can you find the strength to forgive? When your mother has been gang raped, where can you find the ability not to retaliate? When you hold in your arms the lifeless body of your slaughtered child, where can you find the conviction to not pick up an AK-47? God's coming justice for our world is the greatest resource that can empower us to live peacefully today. Because justice is in God's hands, we don't have to take it into our own hands. Without this belief, it may be impossible to truly forgive today. Non-retaliation requires a belief in God's vengeance. Let me read you one more quote. This is from Joshua Butler in his book, uh, Skeletons in God's Closet. It's a very good book. I recommend it. But here's the quote. We, can all, we cannot always control the injustice that comes into our lives, but we can control whether peace comes into our hearts. The Bible teaches us something about God that can take much of that anger, anxiety, and resentment away. The Bible teaches that God is just and that he will rectify the injustices of this life in time. And because God is going to handle this issue, we are free to release these destructive emotions, and live in peace. We're talking about the poetic justice of God. How does that help us today? It helps us to worship God. It helps us to live peaceful, nonviolent lives mostly. Now I'll talk about self-defense. We're still allowed to self-defense. Talk about that next week. That's why I say mostly. All right, and thirdly, one more way. The poetic justice of God helps us to endure the patience of God. Now, that's worded oddly, isn't it? It helps us to endure the patience of God. Romans 6.10, Revelation 6.10, rather. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Right? These are those who were slain for their faith in John's picture of heaven in the book of Revelation. They said, God, what are you waiting for? How long before you avenge us? Sometimes God rectifies injustices in this life. I think it happens a lot more often than we think or that we give God credit for. It does happen in our lifetimes, oftentimes, but not always. Right? We know that not always. And there may be some here this morning who are in the midst of experiencing some injustice. Maybe not as extreme as in Croatia, but there are a lot of other ways to have in 
unfairness voiced upon us or injustice in our lives. And sometimes we wonder, all right, where's God? Why isn't God showing up? What are you waiting for? Why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you fixing this? And I don't know what all the answers are to that question, but I think one of them is the patience of God. One of the answers is the patience of God. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, Moses had asked God to reveal himself, and here's what God said about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, it's God speaking about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That, word, that expression, slow to anger, there's a word picture there in the Hebrew that means long, <clears throat> long of nose. Long of nose? Well, one of the word pictures for anger was nose in the sense of flaring nostrils. So somebody gets angry, wrathful, their nostrils flare. And so God is saying here, he is long of nose. It takes his nostrils a long time to flare, for his anger to flare up. God is patient. If we all experienced the poetic justice of God instantly, as an in instant karma, we would have all perished a long time ago. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, your children are going to inherit this land of Canaan, but not right away. There's already people living there, right? the Canaanites, the Amorites, and their sin has not reached its full measure yet. I'm not ready to punish them yet. Until their sin and their guilt reaches its full measure. So you got to wait. And your descendants will have to wait. You know how long they waited? 400 years. They waited 400 years until the measure of their sin was full. That's the patience of God. And while they waited, the Israelites suffered in Egypt. And sometimes while God waits in his patience, his people suffer. And then finally, the measure was full, and the Israelites come out of Egypt, and under Joshua, they drive out the Amorites and the Canaanites, and now they're living in the land of promise, and lo and behold, they start sinning, and their sins begin to pile up, and they become just as evil and wicked as the Canaanites that they drove out, and they're testing the patience of God until the full measure of their sin came to fruition. You know how long that took? About 400 years. And then God judged the Israelites. And they were conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and carried off into captivity. And that's how Esther and Mordecai and the rest of the Jews wound up in Persia. Remember? Because they were on the business end of the justice of God. They were on the business end. But now they're crying out for mercy and help from God. That story arc that we talked about, that we love so much, where the good guys and the oppressed win in the end. That story arc runs true and sure, but it runs long. Sometimes it takes a long time. And sometimes we suffer in the process. But we understand this about God, don't we? The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 1.16. But God had mercy on me, so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. We like this about the patience of God. As we, we were talking about when we receive the injustice and the unfairness and maybe somebody has oppressed us or somebody that we love, but we've been on the other end of that equation. We've dealt out a little unfairness and injustice 
in our lives. We haven't always treated everyone else fairly. We've done a little oppressing in our lives, and we want God to be patient with us. You talk about Hitler. I mean, we're not Hitlers in here this morning, but the difference between us and Hitler is one of degree, not kind. We're the same kind, same kind. So we understand this business about Patience. We probably, everyone in here has a family member, a neighbor, a loved one, a friend that's not quite there yet. And we're praying, God, be patient a little bit longer. I want this person to experience your grace and your mercy, not your wrath and your justice. So there were two farmers that lived side by side, and one was a believer and the other was an atheist. And the atheist was constantly giving a hard time to his Christian neighbor, you know, and one season, he said, all right, now let's plant our crops. Let's just do a little test. Let's plant our crops this year, and you pray to your God for a bountiful harvest, and I'm going to curse your God. And at harvest time, we'll just see who's got the bumper crop. So that's what they did. And they planted, and came October, harvest time. Sure enough, the atheist had the better crop. And so he's, he's taunting his Christian neighbor, and he says, hey, look at that. What do you have to say for your God now? And Christian said, well, all I have to say is this. My God does not settle all of his accounts in October. So where are we now? We're in that window of God's patience. It's a, it's a time and an opportunity to respond to his grace. We can't take that for granted. I mean, here was Haman begging Esther for his life, but it was too late. That window of grace and opportunity had closed. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6 2, indeed, the time right now, the, the right time is now, and today is the day of salvation. To believe, to repent of sin, to confess Jesus as Lord, be baptized into Christ, and enter into his grace and his mercy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Esther. We thank you for the message that's reinforced here. Your, your character is one of holiness and justice. And we know that one day you're going to make all the wrong things right. We don't know how that's possible, but you certainly do. And we trust you. And we entrust vengeance and justice to you, God. We thank you so much for your mercy and grace. We pray that not only for ourselves, but for the people we care about and are trying to reach. In Jesus' name, amen.